Hello and welcome to Systematically. We're still doing Apocalypse Editions. I'm John Heaps. I'm here with Robin Beret. Hey, Robin. Hey. And Brian Baycheck. Hey, Brian. Yo. And we're kind of doing part two of uh, the conversation we had with Eric Mabry and Joe Mudd about spiritual communion. And we're going to take a little bit of a different angle, a more ecclesiological angle on it. And so for those purposes, uh, we have with us once again, Eric Mabry. Hey, Eric. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Uh, Remind everybody who you are and what you do. That's right. I'm Eric Mabry. I'm an assistant professor of systematic theology at Christ the King Seminary. Um, And I specialize in Christology. And I've also been fortunate enough to spend some time uh, working on the sacraments of late and hence... Uh, my presence on these great podcasts. Oh, yeah, he's just full of thoughts. Uh, we also have with us Gene Schlesinger. Hey, Gene. Hey, John. And who are you and what do you do? That is the perennial question. Um, <laughs> officially, I'm a, a lecturer in the Department of Religious Studies at Santa Clara University. Um, my work tends to focus on the uh, intersection of ecclesiology and sacramental theology. Right on. Thank you. And we also have a friend of the show and previous guest, Jacob Renderkinick. Morning, Jacob. Hey, guys. It's great to be back. And Jacob, remind everyone who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm the director of the Pastoral Institute and assistant professor at the University of the Incarnate Word here in San Antonio, where it is glorious and sometimes a little bit too hot in the afternoons right now to go running. Um, (laughs) Sorry to you up north. Uh, but I also work on uh, the intersection of ecclesiology, sacramental theology, and ecumenism, much like Gene. Uh, so we've been having a lot of conversations around these questions lately. Yeah, you guys got to talking on Twitter about uh, private masses at one point, um, which I thought was an interesting, interesting conversation. And um, so I was thinking about having you all on the show to talk about that. And we will a little bit here. Um, but I want to do it in light of this broader conversation that's going on about about spiritual communion and about availability of the Eucharist and, um, and all these kinds of things. And, uh, but before we get to that, Robin, Chief Frivolity Officer, how, how should we be frivolous today? Well, we're going to be frivolous by taking a little bit of a trip back into the life of younger Robin. Uh, when I was in high school, I did uh, the International Baccalaureate Program, which is um, kind of like an honors program. It's an in, like, but it's an international curriculum. So um, it's set by I don't know the Ivy organization, and so you have to usually you fulfill like whatever kind of provincial or state rate you know um, academic things you have to do for high school. But then you also um, have to fulfill these like kind of take extra courses for IB, and then you write these world exams where you're graded on a curve against everyone else in the world who writes it that year. Um, and you also, it's kind of cool, you take like, you write, have to write a 4,000 word essay and take an epistemology course. And anyways, it was kind of a, an interesting thing, thing to do in high school. Um, but in the literature curriculum for IB, every year classes get a different theme. And we were lucky enough in our year that the theme of our literature class was imprisoned lives. Ooh, cheery. It was incredibly depressing and we were reading all this like very depressing kind of mature literature as like 17 year olds um so maybe didn't you know have like the history of kind of like trauma and whatever else to maybe like give it the uh, respect that it deserved at the time but I think it's one of those things that you know when you're in when you're in class in high school you think like will I ever use this in real life 
And turns out, shout out to IB, this is suddenly super relevant. See, when so I was thinking, 17, I would have been like, I feel so imprisoned by everything around me currently. This is so relevant. And I'm in now, a glass cage of emotions. Yeah, exactly. The bitter irony of that. This is, this is true. I, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and this is very much her experience all, all day, every day. <laughs> so, well, maybe yeah. it says something about me that I just read, like, you know, I read A Doll's House, and I'm like, what's wrong with Nora? Like, you want a macaroon? Just go out and get a macaroon. Like, you know. Um, <laughs> Words to live by. And uh, anyway, so yeah, we read, yeah, we read uh, Ibsen, we read um, Miller's Death of a Salesman, we read um, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Good God. Oh, yeah, it was just, um, so anyway, so it got me thinking about um, what my favorite kind of, you know, work of literature is about someone who is imprisoned or, you know, trapped or some other way like that. And so I thought I would open that up today and ask everyone to weigh in kind of like, what it can be, you know, work of literature about imprisonment or being trapped or whatever kind of is your favorite and why. So specific. Yeah. And actually not really frivolous, to be honest. Yeah. It's a little heavy. It's okay. Well, it's pretty deep. It's pretty deep. It's interesting because your question sparked both the, uh, just me trying to figure out the most fitting response and then thinking about myself in that period in high school. And there was overlap, I think, where uh, mine's a little more metaphorical, but uh, is anybody familiar with the book House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski? was a book that made a huge impression on me when I would have been like 16 or 17 about this family. It's weird because it's, it's sort of a story within a story within a story where it starts out with this super paranoid uh, narrator named Johnny Truant. Uh, who finds this basically chest with a bunch of weird stuff in it in his deceased neighbor's uh, apartment. And in it, there is a screenplay for a film that doesn't exist. And the film is a documentary about this group, uh, a family and some of their closest friends who move into a house that they very soon realize has more space inside of it than is physically possible given the size of the house and it keeps expanding and adding more rooms and adding more rooms and it, it it's this very complex sort of exercise in like semiotic postmodern insanity where there are footnotes that reference other footnotes within the text and the the text will take the shape of the spiral staircase going down to the basement on the page and it ends up becoming about sort of uh recursive loops that you fall into with the narrative of your life it's a really it's it's a very meta take on the idea of sort of narrative life imprisonment and potential escape therefrom and actually within the text it can feel very imprisoning at certain times too so that's i'm gonna it. be honest I'm, I'm gonna be honest i hate it oh it's so good <laughs> I'm, I'm glad gene digs it because i'm not the only one who's defending it i haven't read it i just yeah. that sounds it's, that it's sounds one of the best like form fault sorry john no, no, go ahead. It's, it's one of the best uh, form follows content. Uh, take uh, uh, examples of form following content that I've ever uh, read. Just such fun stuff with typesetting and font colors yeah. and such. There's also, there's a scene where I've never read anything that's freaked me out so badly. There's a scene where the author describes the feeling of thinking there's something behind you where 
you can just outside of the corner of your peripheral vision, you feel like there's something there, but you can't turn around because the sort of paralysis of wanting to turn around weighs you down. It's, it's amazing. It's very good. All right, Eric, take us in a totally different direction. <laughs> How do you know that uh, that's going to happen? How we're good know? at going in totally different directions. <laughs> with Ian, I. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like mine might be a little cliche, but it did have a really profound impact on me when I was in um, like junior high going into high school. So I guess probably uh, Ely Bell's uh, Night would be probably my. That was my second choice. My really? That's funny. Yeah. That is really funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I never, um, I mean, I actually ended up, I mean, talk about, I guess, kind of odd morbidity I actually did a lot of honors work in high school on the holocaust um but Eli Wiesel was my first sort of kind of um literary I guess entrance into into that and uh just um the narrative is really powerful and uh you know he doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't have a happy ending I mean he, he just sort of leaves it I mean, it is night, and, and but it's night in a totally different, uh, in 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 all, in all its oppressiveness, I guess. I mean, and you and you really do feel that that Ely feels this just this this um, darkness of oppression throughout. Uh, so yeah, I think I'd probably go with that in terms of um, sort of my uh, being entrapped. In terms of my favorite, and I've read a lot of Holocaust literature since then, but nothing's quite like nothing's quite like night mine also um although tangentially relates to holocaust literature in that maria daria daria russell uh who's a cleveland author um wrote a book i believe in the wake of her conversion to judaism and her coming to terms in a new way with the shoah uh called the sparrow which strangely enough imagines Jesuits going to a different planet uh, as a vehicle for dealing with unimaginable suffering. Uh, but there's a couple of layers of trappedness in here. So the first is that um, the Jesuits are trapped and a couple of lay people are trapped in this sort of repurposed meteor that's been turned into a, not, um, that's been turned into a spaceship. And then they get to the planet and are sort of discovering it and everything just goes wrong. Um, and part of what they're trapped in is this sort of cultural difference of not being able to understand what's going on on this other planet that has two sentient dinosaur-like life forms. Um, it's a pretty amazing book. And then in the second one, which is called Children of God, it follows up with the main character, Emilio, uh, who's a linguist, that, who's sort of trapped in himself after, um, and in his reputation, his unearned reputation, after he's rescued from this planet and sort of trying to find a way back out into society. So if you guys haven't read these, uh, Maria Daria Russell, The Sparrow, and then Children of God are some of the best literature in the world, um, I think. Yeah, that sounds That's, amazing. Yeah, that sounds right up my alley. I'm going to go dig that up. I'm going to go with uh, a book I read end of elementary school, beginning of junior high, a long, long time ago. Um, and so the thing you have to know is that like third grade, as as elementary age kids will sometimes do, I became obsessed with the Phantom of the Opera, uh, which was which was having a run in San Francisco at the time, uh, and so like I went and saw it, and uh, I even got to um, 
my dad facilitated me writing a letter to the guy who was playing Phantom then. So I got to go like backstage and meet him and like see how they did all the effects of like jumping off the thing through the stage and stuff. I was very, very into it. And I discovered, and I was something of a reader. Uh, and so I discovered this novel by a woman named Susan Kay, I think, that is, it's called Phantom. And, and I, you know, I had read the original, the sort of source material and stuff. Not very successfully, because translation can be a little hard if you're a young young kid reading things. But but Susan Kay has written this novel that I haven't read in a decade, maybe 15 years, called Phantom. And it's it's a kind of it's it's a novelization of the whole life of the Phantom of the Opera character from before he's born and uh through through the end of his life. And it it imagines him as someone with preternatural artistic gifts, unsurprisingly. Um but trapped both behind the mask he covers his horrifically deformed face with, um, but also then trapped with having that face. And, he, and it, it takes lots of little elements of um, the Gaston LaRue novel and turns them into whole narrative sequences. So there's a, there's a whole long uh, part of the story where he's in um, like 19th century Persia and he's learning about like poisons and the Punjab lasso and all that stuff. Um, and that's, that's the first thing that leapt to mind. And now I think I need to reread it because I, I have a feeling it's just nauseatingly melodramatic, but in a way that when I was 13, was perfect. I totally read that book, Jan, too. And Did for you? the same reasons. I had the same yeah. obsession. I definitely read that adaptation and definitely had the same experience with like the original book as well where i was like wow this is really difficult <laughs> to read <laughs> uh yeah wow that's nuts that's crazy okay well i i had to really fight my my impulse to like curate an answer to this i was going to demonstrate how like sophisticated and cultured and urbane i am but <laughs> I, i've decided to instead give you the unvarnished truth and and my example is is not high literature by any stretch uh but I think my favorite example of the sort of imprisoned life genre is uh, the Dark Tower series by Stephen King, oh. um, which, you know, is a total guilty pleasure. It's it, it's a fun ride. You know, he, he can he can weave a story and it, it has, you know, these themes of cycles and fate and addiction and you know, being unable to escape your own choices and guilt and all of that. And you know, I, I, my experience of it is shaped by having read it with some friends, uh, you know, at, during the same period, and we'd have, you know, these discussions of it. And um, yeah, I, you know, for, for all it says about my literary sensibilities, I'm, I'm going with the Stephen King books. I mean, Strong. King is dope. I, yeah, I, I don't want to, I won't spoil the series, so I'm not going to, you know, go into too much detail, but it's, it's got some fun twists for sure. Right on. Uh, they made a, a terrible movie of, of it, and um, they were going to make a terrible Amazon Prime show of it. And so I'm, I'm thankful that they've, they've put that to bed uh, because maybe one day it'll get the adaptation it deserves. <laughs> we just like, need to send Dennis Villanueva, like, we need to send him a letter. Being like, okay, he here's a stand. list, right? <laughs> thank, yeah. you, thank you for following up on Blade Runner. I'm excited for Dune. When you're done doing uh, Canical for Leibowitz, I, here's some here's a series of other stories I would like you to tackle. <laughs> um, all right, well, great. Um, yeah, all awesome. Yeah, I uh, as I was thinking about this, I kind of realized like how many fairy tales would fit into this. 
yeah. like Rapunzel, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, uh, Sleep, um, Sleeping Beauty, like even all of them. Snow White. Like it's really all of them. So, um, but much like apocalyptic literature, whereas or like a movies, like I don't like it unless the world ends. It's kind of the same. Like I really like the Imprisoned Lives ones where there's no resolution. Like or or they all you know. Like, so I really, when we, when I read stuff in high school, like it was a day in the life of Ivan Nisbich that I liked that. It was like, start out, he's in prison for like an indeterminate amount of time. He finished the book, prison, indeterminate amount of time. Like, Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, come on. If you're 35 and you haven't read it, I just feel like, you know, you can be, you can, then it's time for spoilers. It's Accurate. a cultural artifact. It's not my fault anymore. Oh, I'm really sorry to all you 20-year-olds out there who are, like, devotedly listening to this podcast, though. Um, <laughs> For, like, but, so uh, many reasons. On so many. You've made strange life choices. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm not, I don't apologize to all you cool babies out there. Um, what's up, you cool baby? What's up, you cool babies? Uh, but that's, that's actually, a niche reference. <laughs> um, so that was my favorite in high school. Although I have to say, like when I was thinking about this, I just kept coming back to it's kind of cliche now because culture has moved on, and there's so many joke versions of it, like the movie Clue and stuff. But Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. Just like Hell a bunch yeah. of people trapped on an island. Did you ever read? Being... Clue is dope, by the way. Did you ever gone. read? Chuck Chuck Palahniuk's um, sort of play on that genre. I think it's called Haunted, maybe. I have not read a mixing. thing by Chuck Palahniuk, and I don't really plan to, to be honest. That, that one, like, choke. Oh, choke's yeah, good. Yeah. So so that one's partly interesting because um, the the premise of of sort of why everyone is in this place, uh, that why they're in this sort of contained space, uh, is that they are they're all there looking to have a kind of uh, dangerous and traumatic experience that they can capitalize on to write like write their novel or their story about um and so and then and then as is sort of appropriate right all of the things that befall them are all produced by the sort of venial desire to have terrible things befall them so that they can have something to write about um it's a it's a nice little you know some people his sort of minimalism some people have a hard time tolerating uh in terms of his writing style but as a as a narrative trope i thought it was quite clever and underappreciated in his work yeah um, so there you go guys uh, you've got a pandemic reading list now yeah get out there it's really help with the cabin fever <laughs> um all right so let's turn to the matter at hand and and for this, I kind of want to hand it over to um, to Jacob because because when we were talking about this, setting this episode up, he had a kind of nice sense of what the various loci were to approach this question um, from a more ecclesiological perspective. So, um, Jacob, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of let you run with it. And what are the sort of relevant topics here? And what from where do you think we should enter into uh, exploring them? Sure. So I was telling John that in listening to the really excellent episode that you all did on spiritual communion, I had the strange uh, experience of continually thinking, I agree 100% with all of this. And don't think about these questions in any of these ways, right? So it seemed to me that the questions were very much structured around um, sort of how the individual engages with grace in the sacraments. 
which is a, a perfectly valid question to ask, right? But I'm an ecclesiologist. And so um, it, as I've been approaching these sort of the online arguments about whether or not uh, churches should have mass, whether or not Catholics should go to mass if churches being had, et cetera, um, I, I see in this an old, a sort of a tendency towards thinking about um, the sacraments as sort of, and I'm not saying you guys did this, right? But the sacraments as a sort of containers of grace that you can go and get for individuals. Um, and so then if you close off the churches, what you're doing is you're either, you're preventing people from getting to the grace that could otherwise be available, to them, right? That's one of the arguments you guys were talking about and rejecting in good ways. Um, but there's another question that you can ask which is in terms of like a sacramental ecclesiology um, that differentiates between the church understood as being for sacraments and the church being understood as a sacrament itself. Um, so in the terms of that, then we can think about sort of who the church is that's functioning when mass is had, um, what's going on when the sacraments are celebrated, um, and in some sort of specific places that this has come up, like what's happening when a private mass is being celebrated or what's happening ecclesiologically or what's happening when mass is televised and people participate from afar. Does, does those make sense as sort of yeah. mm -hmm. entrance points? Yeah, those are all good. Um, so, so maybe let's start generally. You said something uh, that maybe is, is worth unpacking, which is thinking of the church itself as sacrament. Um, so, so if, you know, if, if you are in your RCIA class or something and, and you're asked, you know, to rattle off the, the sacraments, probably people aren't going to list the church as one of the seven sacraments, right? Um, so in what sense are we talking about the church as sacrament? Uh, and how does that, how does that relate then to what our sort of Thought of as sort of traditionally the seven sacraments. So this is something that hap that becomes more of an emphasis in the 20th century with various kinds of ressourcement happening. Um, so de Lubac famously says the Eucharist makes the church. Uh, Skillebex talks about Christ as sacrament and church as sacrament, um, out of which the others arise in its life. Um, and we see it a little bit in the um, in where Lumen Gentium talks about the sacraments as both the source from which the church's life comes and the direction towards which the church's life is going, right? Um, and so when we think about the church as sacrament, we're both saying that the church is made by the sacraments and that the product, the thing that arises out of the sacraments is something with its own mediation, that's what sacraments are, right? Signs and mediations of, um, the divine life in the world. I mean, Gene, you've you've done a lot of thinking about this precise issue. Maybe you want to expand or take us in a different direction. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think expand rather than taking in a different direction. Uh, you know, there's there's this juncture uh, very early in Lumen Gentium. I believe it's in the the first paragraph where uh, you know the council the council fathers state that the the church is um, as a sacrament of uh, the saving union of humanity with God and the unity of the whole human race. And that, you know, this is sort of the, the fundamental, you know, theological meaning of the mystery of the church. And, and 
and that it's, it's really from this starting point that everything else that the Constitution has to say about the church unfolds. And, you know, when, when we look at it in, in, that, in those terms, um, it, it sort of resituates the sort of questions that we might have about, say, what is the church doing when it celebrates the Mass? Uh, what are we doing when we participate in the celebration of the Mass? Uh, you know, do I need to go to Mass? Uh, those, those sorts of questions. Um, I think, you know, looking at what the purpose of the church is, uh, what the nature of the church is before we, we start asking these, you know, sort of more uh, casuistical uh, questions about our, our participation in it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll have more to say, but I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. So, so let's, let's zoom in then on, uh, on the Eucharist specifically, right? You, you quoted the sort of axiom of, of Henri de Lubac, um, that the Eucharist makes the church can now that, that can be, uh, the, the, a sort of, um, a hand wavy kind of thing, right? I I've seen on, on Twitter, a little bit of that, that being invoked in a hand wavy kind of way once or twice. Um, but what really quite precisely, what does that, what does that mean? How does that work? Um, what, and, 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 uh, how does, does that emerge sort of de novo as a bright idea of Delubox or does that come, is that a kind of, is it in fact a kind of resourcement? What's going on there? Um, wh- why did Delubox, for example, feel the need to emphasize that point? So I, I see it um, arising out of some of the historical work he did around two important terms, right? There's the um, corpus mysticum and the corpus verum, the, the, to, in the reverse order, the true church and the mystical church, although I think sacramental church is a much better translation here of corpus mysticum than mystical, uh, precisely because, let me back up. So Dulebach does this really important uh, study of basically every time in the Latin Western theological tradition that either of those terms is used from the 7th to the 12th centuries. And notices that over the course of the 7th to the 12th centuries, the references of those terms switch. So in the 7th century, corpus mysticum primarily refers to the Eucharistic species, and corpus verum primarily refers to the church. And by the time you get to the 12th century, there's been a complete swap where the mystical body is the Eucharist and the I'm sorry, where the mystical body is the, is the church and the true body is the Eucharist. And that seems to be in response to um, all of the ongoing arguments that start with Rigbertus and Retramnus and all those folks about whether in what way the Eucharist really is Christ's body uh, and people really trying to emphasize that the Eucharist is really the body of Christ. But there's a problem that I think de Lubach notices, which is going a little bit unnoticed in the literature he's reading, which is if mystical body isn't strong enough for the Eucharist, it's probably not strong enough for the church either. And so one of the things that's going on in that switch is that as this emphasis shifts, there's less of a focus on how the Eucharist is the sacrament that turns the church into truly Christ's body. Instead, where you have the church as the sort of instrument of God making the true body of the Eucharist for people to receive. So by the time we get to the Protestant Reformation, for example, then you've got sort of a lot of arguing over um, to what extent 
Christ is present, or to what extent and how Christ is present in the Eucharist. And the church is pretty universally engaged with as a society rather than a sacramental means of its own by both Protestants and Catholics in the argument, right? Um, I've been talking for a while. Does that make sense to folks so far or? No, that's great. That's yeah. great. So, so I, yeah. and I, I, I do want to sort of stick the landing on. So then in light of those circumstances, um, why does the Luboxi fit to sort of press the particular point? Sure. So if you think about, if you, so in the, this is the way in which it's really a ressourcement that if you, in a sense, retrieve the older understanding, right, of the Eucharist being the thing that makes the church rather than the church being the thing that makes the Eucharist, then the sort of social uh, salvific aspects of the Eucharist become much clearer. So let me, let me run through the two modes. So if you have the way in which you think about the church primarily as a society, and specifically, let's be clear, a society of the clergy, who then make the Eucharist for other people, then what you have, and this is an overstatement, but it's also a tendency, right? It's a ditch in the road, alongside the road we should avoid. Um, there's a tendency towards thinking of the Eucharist as sort of the means of grace, and that's good language, but the means by which sort of grace is given in certifiable quantities to people so that they are individually saved, right? That's a, that's a danger you can fall into. And I think Delubach is saying that if you invert those things and you say, the Eucharist is the sacrament celebrated in the midst of the church that makes it most fully itself, which is the true body of Christ, then salvation is incorporation into the body. Salvation is the sort of, this is the pilgrimage language in that the church is journeying towards its final fulfillment together to be um, Christ's body in the eschatological reality, right? And that the Eucharist makes it ever more fully that. And so then in that case, what salvation is, is incorporation. It's communal, it's engaged, it's engagement, right? Rather than sort of a possession that you can get. There's less of a danger of turning grace into a thing, sacraments into a thing that you have, and salvation into a possession. Gene, is there anything you want to you add to the, that account? And then um, if so, or if not, I, I want to talk about private masses in light of that. But, but yeah. if there's anything you want to say first, please feel free. Yeah, uh, just a little bit of expansion uh, and, and, and riffing on those themes that I, I think can also come back to the, the original presenting question of like, what it is to say that the Eucharist makes the church. Uh, so, you know, al along the way, as de Lubach is analyzing this term corpus mysticum, uh, part of what he does is he says, okay, mysticum has sort of two reference in that, that early period. One, he identifies with the, the scriptural end of things, uh, which connects with his theology of uh, spiritual exegesis. And that's the idea of like the mystery uh, that, you know, was hidden and is now revealed, um, all that. And then the other is like the cultic aspect. So mysticum as uh, referring to the church's mysteries that are celebrated uh, at, at the altar. And, and, and so the, the, the cultic and liturgical dimension of the, the corpus mysticum is, is foregrounded in that, that earlier period. And so neither of these have this sort of like later sense of mystical as ethereal or, you know, what have you, that, that wind up becoming the, the fear later so that, you know, it, it needs to be replaced, uh, you know, 
oh, it's it's not mystical, it's it's real. Um, but rather mystical refers to um, you know being celebrated at the altar or uh, the mystery being revealed. So there's there's that dimension of it. Um, so he has a very liturgically focused uh, notion of the corpus mysticum. The other is uh, Jacob. Did you have that, something you wanted to interject on that previous point before? Just I wanted to clarify something that Gene is saying here a little bit, which is to say when we're saying the mysteries on the altar, we're really saying the sacraments, right? And so to talk about the mystical bodies specifically to mean the sacramental body. Um, but so in some ways to call the Eucharist the sacramental body is not anything anyone's going to disagree with, right? Yeah, precisely. One of the things that, that gets lost in that period is this sense of the, the Greek term and the Latin term being the same thing, right? That the, that, the, that the mysterion and the sacramenta are the same thing, right? And so that when we, see, when we say the, the mystical body and it just feels like this woo-woo faraway thing that's not real enough, um, that's the connection that's getting lost. And that's what Gene was saying. I just wanted yes. to. No, I yeah, think that's yeah, helpful. Thanks, and, and, I, and for those, for people, you know, for our listeners who are, who are like me, who don't have as much of a background in these kinds of things, you know, what, that when we talk about the mediating function of a sacrament, part of, part of that, um, and, and a, indeed a big and central part of it, is that, you know, what the visible sign is of is of an invisible reality. And that kind of ocular metaphor of, of visible and invisible um, really is, is also pertaining to what, you know, in, you know, if you're in more sort of philosophical, systematic theologian like myself, right, that's a specific case of the more general uh, reality of the divine absoluteness and transcendence and all those things is going to be mysterious, which, you know, if you've taken your intro to theology courses, you know, the, the note that the idea of mystery here is not a mystery in the sense of an unintelligibility, but a kind of excess of intelligibility, right? And so um, because of the, the you know, what Lonergan calls the theorem of the supernatural, right? Because of the positing of a disproportion between the divine and the creaturely, and in this case, the human, um, there's needed some mediation. Uh, that if, if something of God is going to be received by us in the mode of us as receivers, um, there has to be some kind of mediation. And so, so if, if mystical has too many sort of connotations for you, um, maybe mystery can function in that sort of controlled sense of uh, ontological excess, right? That there has to be a mediation between this disproportion. Anyway, that's just another angle to the same point that Jacob was making and that, that Gene was making to try and try and triangulate the meanings of these terms here. But before we move on, John, I just have a kind of a clarifying question from, uh, for Jacob, because as you all know, uh, I'm always about 10 steps behind on any question in ecclesiology. Um, but when you were describing kind of the two options, the Eucharist makes the church or the church makes the Eucharist, and the option of church makes the Eucharist, is there a way that that's expressed that isn't so, like, unmitigated clericalism because the way you were it makes it sound like the priests make the eucharist and the lay people either don't exist or they just they have some sort of secondary participation but like almost as if then there's an ontological difference between priests who make the eucharist and lay people who just get to eat it like is is there a way that that's expressed in christian history where the church as like the entire body like you know clerics and lay people together then make a Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's partly what's going on in, um, in Lumen Gentium, right? Where it talks about the, 
the fundamental difference, but connectedness between the common priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood is that what happens, I mean, obviously in a sort of good, well-balanced ecclesiology, the Eucharist makes the church and the church makes the Eucharist. Both of those things are true. And um, Delubach says both uh, in, in the splendor of the church, and, and he's trying to recover precisely this theme that Jacob's talking about, that, you know, the entire church is priestly and the entire church is involved. Any, uh, you know, the, the clergy have, you know, their particular role in, in the mass, but that all of the faithful are involved and uh, participants in uh, the, the work of uh, the sacrifice at the altar. Yeah, but let me give you two sort of, I think, really clear examples according of what to their own, it yeah. looks like. So on the one hand, it's not uncommon in sort of, places that have state churches of various sorts, right, whether that's Catholicism or Anglicanism or Lutheranism or whatever, right, to talk in a similar way about my first child who went into the military and my second child who went into the church, right? That's, that's a sort of way that we speak about this that's become part of our culture. On the other hand, uh, my former monastery up in Minnesota, every time that a, um, every time a monk dies, they send out a card with his picture on it and on the back of it, the abbot always says, I ask each member of our community and our oblates to offer two masses on behalf of this person according to the manner of their participation in the priesthood of Christ, right? And which is saying, priests, please offer mass. Lay people, please attend mass and pray for this person as befits your participation as a baptized member of the priesthood of Christ not a ministerial member of that of the presbyteral priesthood right um and so that's that those two very different ways of thinking about this are both possible um and part of the problem is because the language is the same you can say something and it can be heard in both of those ways simultaneously by different people right thank you so let's i want to rehearse a little bit the conversation you two had on twitter about private masses then um, Gene, if I remember correctly, if I were a better host, I would have pulled this up and could, could refer to it directly, but I'm not. So here we are. But Gene, if I remember correctly, you're sort of speculating about, uh, how our, our, our new circumstances here under COVID-19 might sort of renew the practice of private masses or something to that effect, or at least might indicate some, some value for them or something like that. Tell, tell me if I'm getting this even broadly correct. Yeah, no, I, I think that's about right. So I was, you know, sort of surveying the landscape. And noticing, you know, how, you know, we've sort of moved towards, uh, you know, not having public masses, which is absolutely the right thing to be doing right now, because it's, it would be criminally irresponsible uh, from a public health standpoint to have large gatherings of people. Um, so everyone's doing the right thing there. And then there's this sort of, okay, now, now what do we do liturgically question that's being asked and the default uh, assumption seems to be live streaming the mass and you know so you've got you know the the priest and you know perhaps you know some uh servers in attendance offering the mass in front of a camera uh and then you know uh the baptized watching it you know on on their screens and that's sort of being you know the new normal for mass now and um and I was just reflecting upon the fact that within the Roman Catholic tradition where, you know, the private mass is a thing and, you know, is considered valid and, you know, 
all, all of that, that there's, there's already a theological framework in place where that makes sense. But within my own uh, Episcopal tradition, where, you know, one of our big beefs at the Reformation was the private mass for a variety of legitimate reasons, um, you know, we, we essentially forbid the practice. And, and yet now we're in a, a state where more or less that's what we have to do. We just have webcams now. Uh, and and we, we don't have the theological resources for, for making sense of the practice, whereas, you know, Catholics are, are able to do so. And, and I think that our, our discussion that we were just having about the various ways in which the faithful participate in the priesthood of Christ is, is precisely the angle by which we can approach the question in a way that uh, allows it to, you know, make ecclesiological sense. Uh, as opposed to just reverting to, you know, 16th century controversies and, and abuses. So, so on the face of it to an outsider, that seems like a counterintuitive claim to make, the, the one you just made, that the, that the account of uh, the, sort of, the sort of the Lubakian account of the Eucharist and its relationship to the church would be uh, undergirding to the practice of private masses. Um, and here's why I mean that for precisely the reasons that Robin was bringing up, right? That the the participation of the laity and their sort of proper modality would be um, of the essence of of this thing now. And the idea of of a of the private mass seems to mitigate that at least quantitatively, if not fully qualitatively. Um, now, that's obviously a kind of superficial interpretation of what you're talking about, but but it 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 lends itself to a kind of sense of incongruity between the, the, the prior claim and the one you just made. So can you spell out for me why I'm wrong about that? Yeah, well, I, I think what we need to do then is to, you know, allow that Lubakian um, understanding of the, the corpus mysticum and the Eucharist makes the church and all of that to situate presbyteral identity and ministry ecclesiologically. So that the priest is never acting just as priest, just as presbyter, uh, and as an individual, but rather as a particular order, uh, or as 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 a member of the church who is ordered in a certain way. Uh, so that the the role of the priest is always representative, uh, representative of um, and of the body of Christ as body as well. So in every mass, even if you have only the priest celebrating, um, the, the priest is there representing the entire faithful people. Um, and, and, and that's, that's an image uh, and a reality that's been lost, but that needs to be recovered if we're going to make sense of what a priest is doing uh, when offering a private mass. So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, I'm I'm hearing an ecclesiological uh, corollary of my favorite metaphysical point, which is that orders are prior to things. I'm hearing you say that orders are prior to offices. Yeah, that's right. It's also true that the private mass is still making the church, right? Mm -hmm. That if we think about the about the Eucharist's role as making the church and not just making grace available to people who receive in person, then the celebration of mass without the people is never really without the people, 
right? It's still the celebration of mass for the church that builds up the church in a different way. Mm-hmm. Robin, you look like you want to jump in. Yeah, I do. Because the has to do with something about like the, the digital medium. And that is that if you are live streaming the mass and you have even one person watching, is it, and they're, and they're engaged in their own act of spiritual communion. Is that a private mass? I mean, I would argue no, but also, well, so one of my favorite things that happens in the um, modern ecumenical moment is that it's not uncommon to hear people like Gene making what sound like very medieval Catholic arguments and people like me making what sound like, well, but you have to pay attention to the Protestant critique arguments. Of the Catholic. <laughs> um, and so in that same Twitter moment, I was saying, you know, well, yes, the private mass, but also we have to be careful that we don't conceive of the private mass as either a possession of the priest individual or as a thing that is available to make more grace present to the world in a sort of quantifiable amount, right? Like, of course, the mass makes grace present, but it does that by building up the church, not by producing two and a half cups of grace, right? Um, And so this is where I think a lot of the conversation that you all had in the last podcast about sort of how this, in a sense, pulls towards the future um, reunification of the church around the altar in person, right? Or what was our friend Anne's hymn that she wanted to write? Uh, the hymn to the Christ who I will one day consume. Yeah, I think that's something like that, yeah. Um, and that that's the thing. In, in, it's very much, so when I talk about the um, Sunday obligation with my students, I always do it in terms of this, this exercising of the baptismal priesthood, right? And so the church can't really be fully the church without all of y'all. And so, but it, which is very much like Thanksgiving. Your grandmother would be real upset with you if you didn't show up for Thanksgiving. So in that sense, you have an obligation to be there for the sake of the building up of the family, right? But at the same time, if Thanksgiving were next week, none of us would be traveling home for it because we care, precisely because we care about our grandmothers. Right. I think that's excellent. I think that also, you know, highlights something really important. John was noting, you know, mediation. and, And I couldn't help but think one of the, features of, you know, Delubach's resourcement with respect to the meaning of mystical is not just mysticum as an adjective or mystery as a noun, but he really highlights the way in the ninth century that mystical is a verb, like to make mystical, like the mm. act of consecration. And in that way, I think it, 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 um, it foregrounds really nicely, John, your emphasis on mediation. And I think you know, going back to Gene's comments at the very beginning of um, the episode on that opening paragraph of Lumen Gentium, I'm always struck by the intervening paragraphs before the council then goes into the various images of the church. So paragraphs two through four. So right after the council has made this claim about the church as the sacrament of humanity's union with God, it then defines in a way what it means what it is that's being mediated through this sacrament. And what's being mediated through the sacrament is the divine life, the Trinitarian life. It's Trinitarian spiritual communion that's being mediated through the missions of the word and the missions of the spirit. And uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, John, I don't know if you'd be open to it, but, uh, you know, maybe there could be something further that we could do talking about, you know, this 
um, this mediation of value. I mean, we're talking about love as the spiritual effect of the Eucharist, but I think, you know, love is something that implies mutuality and that therefore it's inherently communal and not individualistic. You can't have an individualistic love because it's not love. And so, um, you know, maybe thinking about the way in which the missions of word and spirit um, as the contingent mediations of the divine life uh, manifest themselves through these modalities of love, value, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No, I think that's nice. Yeah. And I think we should probably do that in a, it would, it would take us far afield to, to dig way into the Trinitarian theology for our purposes here. Um, but, but, and so maybe we can put together another episode and, and, and do that work another time. Um, I'm all about hitting this from as many relevant angles as we can, because I think it's important and I hopefully it's helpful to people. But yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a point well made that the, the interpersonal character of it isn't just on the side of the recipients, but is also um, on the side of, uh, of God, uh, is, is on the side of that which is communicated and the one who is communicating it or the, and the community that is commu- the triune community that's communicating it. Um, and so, you know, it's going to characterize the, the, the mediating act as well. Uh, and not just as a kind of condescension to our, our finitude or something. Yeah. Well said. Um, okay. So before we wrap it up, either Gene or Jacob or both uh, on this topic, uh, on the sort of ecclesiological angle to these questions, what should I have asked you about that? I didn't, what do we need to make sure we, we include in the conversation so that it's relatively complete? Yeah. Well, one, one thought that I've had, uh, kind of persistently throughout um, our conversation and then, you know, the larger uh, situation we're in is that this category of the church as sacrament really is the one that helps to situate us properly within the present distress, which is to say, you know, we could sort of have two I- extreme reactions to the question of what what should the church be doing uh, during this time of uh, a global public health crisis. One would be a sort of, you know, you know, very tratty. Um, you know, you have to go to mass because that's where you get your grace, and, and, and you know, rules. the church is necessary for salvation. Yeah, and you know, so you must do that. Church is indispensable, and you know, so you know, don't, don't, don't stop offering public masses. Don't stop going to mass. Uh, and that's a terrible, terrible idea, uh, undergirded by, um, bad theology, uh, in, here, here. in, in this. Yeah. Uh, the other extreme would be to say like, oh, you know, grace is ubiquitous. It's available everywhere. It doesn't really matter. You know, you know, the salvation extends beyond the church. Therefore the church is, you know, dispensable. And, you know, so, you know, we shouldn't be worried about the fact that we, we can't have public masses right now. And, and neither of those are, you know, especially satisfying theologically. But if we recognize that the church is a sacrament, then we uh, can recognize both uh, its indispensability and the fact that uh, grace is not like enclosed within the church and only available uh, within the church. Um, the church is. Um, you know, production that, that Christ has gathered uh, and is, is bringing back through its pilgrimage uh, back to the Father. Um, and, and yet, you know, sacraments 
uh, assigns are not the same thing as what they signify. Uh, De Lubach talks about how, you know, the, the sacraments are indispensable and yet they have to be passed through entirely. Because eschatology, there aren't going to be, eschatologically, there's not going to be a church hierarchy. Uh, all of these things are going to give way to the realities that they signify. And, you know, in this between time, uh, we, we do live in a sacramental economy. Uh, we do, you know, inhabit uh, the pilgrim church uh, and all of that. And, and that's, that's well and good. Uh, but our, our participation in the realities that they signify and the reality that they signify is not just our individual reception of grace, but our communal uh, belonging with one another and with Christ um, is not limited to the confines of the church. And, and so recognizing the church's sacrament allows us to negotiate uh, both of those, um, you know, probably, you know, we avoid the skill and the charybdis. And, and so that allows us to recognize that, like, this is not normal. It's not forever. Uh, when we are able to return to public masses, we should, um, but that, you know, the church is still the church um, in this time. I think I want to add to that only that one of the, so sometimes when you've got a difficult problem to face, the best thing to do is use tools that you already have to face that problem, right? And Catholic theology has very well worked out tools around sacrifice. And so when we focus on the church as a sacrament, we get a lot of the things that Jean was pointing us to. We have the distinction between the res and the sacramentum, right? The sign and the thing that is signified, which in sacraments we receive both of and only together, right? But which um, points towards the, the thing itself is the thing that the sacraments are for, right? So baptism is not an end in itself. Baptism is an incorporation into the body of Christ. The Eucharist is not an end in itself. John, I think in the last podcast, you talked about scandalizing your students by saying they could love the Eucharist too much. And, and, um, and, and in that instance, actually scandalizing your students. So sorry about that. No, that's, they, it was, it's good for them. Um, and they, <laughs> they still adore you. Oh, um, good. They, they ask me regularly if we're going to get Dr. Heaps back one of these. Oh, warms my heart. But the church also is this, right? And so we have, you can love the church too much. Um, there is an idolatry of the church that is possible. Um, and so, and then part of that is also to say, um, there's that great old, that great old saying, sacramenta sint propter homines, right? Sacraments are for persons. Um, and if that's the case, the church is also for persons, right? Um, and so, I don't know. I kind of feel like this fits into a broader conversation um, that I know a number of us have had on different at different times about how we think about these questions in an era of ecclesial and ecclesiastical crises, right? So this is a, a new ecclesial crisis, but it's in some ways not that different from the other ecclesiastical crises we've dealt with in the last couple of decades. Um, because if you think about the people who have been unable for real psychological reasons to not engage with the sacraments, this is in some ways the rest of us are now for physiological reasons mm. caught up in the same place where they were. Um, and so we have all these ways of thinking about how the church is both absolutely necessary and God can transcend, God transcends it, right? Yeah, and, it's, and that's an excellent point. 
that, that, that there's an occasion there's an occasion for solidarity here going one direction. Um, but I, and on that point, I also think of something that, that Cornell West would say after 9-11 is uh, he, he would say, you know, I would have my white, the, in the way that Cornell West speaks, right? I would have my white brothers and sisters come to me and say, Brother West, you know, I, I just, I've never known what it was like to be so hated and to be so afraid and, you know, so on and so on. And, and West, with a characteristic generosity, would respond, um, well, let me, let me tell you about the African-American experience in America, because we have some resources for thinking about what it's like to be afraid and hated and, and so on and so on. Um, and so, you know, on this point, yeah, there's, there's well-worn tools uh, in sacramental theology, but there's also probably a, a conversation to be had um, in solidarity a, a, a across the gap with people who, for, for significant and valid psychological reasons, have, have been held at a, at a distance um, from the Eucharist uh, with those of us who now, because of a, a pandemic, are held at a distance from the Eucharist. I think that's... Um, I, I don't want to be in charge of that conversation because that sounds super hard. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, maybe an, an occasion for God to bring some, some good out of a whole, whole host of evils there. Anything else, y'all? Any, well, any last I, thoughts? I, I think it's interesting that uh, Jacob pivoted in that direction because I was, I was thinking it. Uh, Eric's point about the maybe maybe a follow-up conversation about uh the both trinitarian communal and trinitarian missional wrinkles to this conversation uh, i think can be illuminative of or at least can be in conversation with those struggles because the the trinity is present in the world uh the son and spirit are missioned into the world uh prior to the incarnation and prior to pentecost and the participation in and imitation of the uh, transfiguring, deifying relationality that is uh, always reaching out to humanity in and through those, uh, both the visible missions of the Spirit and the Son and the invisible missions of the Spirit and the Son. Uh, while they may have an acute sort of point of resonance relative to the sacraments in a time of crisis like this, have always been extended in all moments of crisis to absolutely everyone, always and everywhere. And I think uh, it's, it's been one of the things, frankly, that I've been struggling with in the wake of the abuse crisis is uh, I am one of those people who has an extremely difficult time going to mass uh, with the hypocrisy and frustration associated with everything going on. And as systematic sort of philosophical theologian wrestling with uh, what it is to participate in and imitate divine relationality uh, and they do so in a way that's authentically faithful in the sacramental tradition of the church has sort of sparked some of these questions in my mind. And I'd be interested to see how they can sort of resonate uh, in a more sacramental fashion, because that's not necessarily what I'm trained to think about. And I'd like to, I'd like to pivot into discussing that with people like, like Eric or Jacob or Gene or Joe, or really anybody else on this panel, uh, who's more qualified to discuss the sort of sacramental nature of that with me. Good. Sorry I, for rambling. It's no, no, not at all. I, uh, yeah. I think, while. I think you, um, yeah, you put your finger on something that you know, Gene, or that Eric rather mentioned before. That's that's worth following up on. 
Um, and maybe we'll do maybe we'll do part three on this topic, and we'll hit it from the Trinitarian angle. I think that sounds that sounds helpful and timely. Um, and yet, and and yet, and yet more content for all of you out there in podcast land to listen to while you do the dishes and walk your dogs and socially distance and all those things. So, Gene and Jacob and Eric, thank you for being with us today to talk about this from an ecclesiological perspective. Really appreciate your help on that front. Um, Thank you, Robin, for uh, not significantly frivolous frivolity, but, you know, there's always next time. I'm, te- I'm just teasing. <laughs> I got a very demure smile out of that one, and I feel bad now. <sighs> Thanks it's, so much for having us It's just the copious now. morning beer kicking in over here. I worry <laughs> about it. Thanks so much for having us. It's always good to be back with you guys. Yeah. This was uh, a delight. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, well, I'm going to spend the time between this episode and the next one feeling guilty about giving Robin a hard time. Uh, you should spend the time between episodes tweeting us at SystematicPod <laughs> on Twitter uh, or sending us angry emails at systematicallypod, or, excuse me, to systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can help support the show, patreon.com slash systematically. Uh, our intro and outro music, as ever, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. It would help the show find a wider and a newer audience if you would rate and review it in your podcast distribution mechanism of choice. And while Specifically you, rate it well. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's a certain number of stars we prefer. We can be frank. Uh, so, yeah, while you're imprisoned in your home by a global pandemic... Be responsible. <laughs> <laughs>